This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Transgender is a term for individuals whose gender identity or behavior does not conform to that associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. It's difficult to estimate the number of transgender individuals, primarily because there are no population studies that accurately account for the range of gender identity and gender expression. Today we're joined by Dr. Caroline Davidge-Pitts, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and a core member of the Transgender and Intersex Specialty Care Group at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Carolyn. Thanks so much. Let's start with a definition. Uh, what's, what's the difference between sex and gender? So sex is essentially our biology. So that includes the chromosomes that we have, uh, as well as our reproductive organs. This is a little different from gender, which is in fact our internal sense of being male or female. However, there also may be a spectrum of this, including perhaps identifying as neither male or female, or both as male and female. All right. This topic, transgender medicine, has resulted in an explosion of new, ter- new terminology. Uh, transgender, transsexual, trans man, trans woman, gender identity, and many more. It seems kind of confusing. Can you go over some of the commonly used terminology? So I will say that terminology is definitely changing over time. And even in the next week, month, year, the discussion that I have today about terminology may be completely different. Um, There certainly are older terms that we no longer use, and I'll mention those, particularly a gender identity disorder. Um, We use the term gender dysphoria now for that, which the definition of is the clinical distress that comes with that incongruence between sex assigned at birth and gender identity. Um, And another term that we no longer use is transsexualism. With respect to the other terms, our big umbrella terms are transgender and gender nonconforming. I think John, gender nonconformity gives a little bit more room for gender diversity for patients who perhaps don't identify as transgender man or transgender woman, uh, for example, being our non-binary patients. Um, and then some other, uh, other terminology that we certainly use in, in the medical field, when I say a trans woman, what I mean by that is a a sex assigned male at birth who is pursuing feminizing hormone therapy or feminizing transition. Uh, a transgender man is a female sex assigned at birth who uh, requests masculinizing uh, transition. Another term that I also want to bring up just because it will come up likely in our discussion today is the term cisgender. And so cisgender means that you have congruence between your sex assigned at birth uh, and your gender identity. For All right. Thank you very much. That, that, that makes sense. Is it known what causes one to be transgender? So I will say at this point that uh, being transgender or gender nonconforming is a diversity and not a disease. However, looking at why someone would feel incongruent with their sex assigned at birth, I think the short answer is we don't really know. The, it's possibly to, uh, multifactorial, and so there may be uh, genetic uh, influence, and so we have seen that in twin studies. Um, 
there may be an influence of hormones, whether that hormone exposure be in utero. So for instance, patients who are exposed to a higher level of androgens um, or even hormone exposure just, just after birth. The reason we think about hormones as possibly playing an influence in this incongruency is that we know from some studies in uh, intersex patients, so particularly patients who have something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia and are born XX but may have uh, virilizing uh, hormone exposure, they have a higher rate of gender incongruence in their lifespan compared to the general population. Could, could you briefly go over what some of the twin studies have shown? Sure. So uh, looking at uh, twin studies, essentially in, in a nutshell, uh, looking at uh, twins who are fraternal twins versus looking at uh, identical twins, uh, there really was a 0% uh, concordance between fraternal twins. However, in uh, identical twins, there was a concordance of about 40%. So it really makes the case that genetics plays a significant role in this. Mm -hmm. It okay. may. When do most individuals uh, come to the realization that they are transgender? Most of my patients will tell me that they felt different around the age of four. Their parents may have noticed that their behaviors, their plays, their, their peers are the opposite sex of what that person was born to. However, it's really when they reach teenage, you know, teens, adolescents, where they're able to meet LGBT individuals or read on the internet about this, where they may have an aha moment and realize that this is what they've been feeling all their life. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know in providing care to transgender patients? And how can we as primary care providers do a better job in caring for transgender patients? One of the scary statistics uh, that I see being in the healthcare field myself is that about 70% of transgender individuals have experienced maltreatment at the hands of healthcare providers. Um, and this can be anything from harsh or abusive language all the way to frankly um, refusing to see them or refusing to touch them. Um, so I think as healthcare providers, one thing we can do is just see the patient. Mm -hmm. And so you may not necessarily be an expert in transgender hormone therapy or transition necessarily, but don't forget transgender individuals get coughs and colds, they get rashes that need to be seen. Mm -hmm. And just because they're transgender doesn't mean that we should turn them away. Uh, the other big statistic that I see is, you know, we, we know that the prevalence of suicide attempts is higher in these individuals. If we look at what the, the prevalence is in the general population of suicide attempts, it's about 5%. If we look at the transgender uh, population, it's up to 40%. What's scary is that those who had reported an adverse encounter with a healthcare provider, that percentage can go up even to 60%. So if you think about our role in transgender patients, it's huge and our influence is, is huge. Uh, and so just having an accepting practice, whether you know about this topic or not, I think is a huge step forward. The other big thing is it within the practice itself. So you can imagine for a transgender woman perhaps who had transitioned 10 years ago, who lives full time as female, um, is on hormone therapy, let's say has had surgeries, and but has not changed perhaps their legal name, birth certificate, driver's license. Um, it can be very difficult for that patient, um, and frankly patients will often avoid seeing the doctor for one of these reasons, is imagine going into that waiting room having to fill out forms where they have all their 
let's say male names, male gender markers, no options to write down essentially anything else. And then, you know, someone comes, either the nurse or the physician, to the front door and calls that name out loud and awkwardly in front of the entire mm -hmm. waiting room, they have to get up and go into the waiting room and somewhat explain themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, small things like having the, in, in your intake forms, you know, just a way to be able to have a preferred name, preferred pronouns, even if it's separate from the legal name. Um, and also having some, you know, perhaps things like a, a gender a gender neutral bathroom that uh, may be uh, more comforting for, for patients as well. Mm -hmm. Are there common health risks that uh, transgender individuals face? Mm -hmm. We did look at um, health risks here in Olmstead County. Um, and certainly one of the leading uh, health problems that we see is uh, um, psychiatric illness, uh, behavioral health problems, uh, the highest being depression where over 70% of patients identified as having a history of depression. We also see a high rate of uh, substance abuse and, um, and suicide, as I mentioned previously. Uh, the other thing is patients may avoid the doctor. They may avoid the doctor because they've had a previous healthcare experience that was poor, or their insurance doesn't cover perhaps health-related um, services. And so many patients don't have the screening that they that they need. So an example would be a transgender man may not have regular pap smears as they need. Um, and then lastly, we do see uh, in patients who have had difficulty finding employment, whether it be related to uh, their gender identity or other, uh, may pursue sex work. And so we, uh, we always are careful to ensure we are aware of how patients do engage in sex work and that we ensure that their HIV screening and STI screening is up to date as well. Okay. Keeping up to date in our field is easier when you can network with colleagues from all specialties. If you'd like to network with experts and learn more about transgender medicine, join us in Washington, D.C., October 4th through the 6th for Principles in the Care of Transgender and Intersex Patients. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. I know some transgender patients pursue hormonal treatment. Is this something that we should be getting comfortable prescribing, or is this something that a specialist should perform? So absolutely does not have to be done by an endocrinologist necessarily. So many of the leading transgender specialists in our country are in fact not endocrinologists. Uh, and so there are a number of resources for patients, for providers who uh, would like to learn more about this. Um, there are a number of courses that can be um, taken um, and Certainly, you can become an initial prescriber if you have the, the support in your practice and in your community. However, if you're not comfortable necessarily initiating hormone therapy, certainly I think it is, it is reasonable to continue hormone therapy if you're able to have a relationship with the primary provider of the hormone prescriptions and you can be involved in the maintenance and, and general uh, screening for those patients. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about healthcare screening and preventive strategies. Mm -hmm. How do those differ in the transgender patients who have been on hormonal mm -hmm. therapy? Okay, so first I can talk about our transgender women. So these are, these are sex assigned male 
uh, who identify as female. Um, one thing that's often forgotten is that these patients uh, do con have their prostate. So even if they've had uh, gender-affirming surgery, they will still have their prostates in place. And so it's important not to forget uh, screening of the prostate for prostate cancer. I will say in respect to this, if, if we think about hormone therapy and how this suppresses testosterone and the prostate tissue being testosterone sensitive, the normal PSA range for um, not concerning of prostate cancer may not apply. And so it's important to, to, to keep that in mind. The other thing uh, for transgender women is to not forget about mammograms. We really don't have good science on where, when and how mammograms should be, should be done, but based on some recent presentations um, at our uh, uh, annual meeting, uh, and here at Mayo Clinic, what we've decided as a general rule is to begin mammograms at the age of 40, uh, in addition to that patient having five to 10 years of hormone therapy mm -hmm. with, in addition to that. And I imagine the screening tests that are not gender specific, such as colon screening, mm -hmm. would just continue as, yep. uh, as with any other patient. One additional interesting finding, though, as well, is that uh, bone density um, is often low in uh, transgender women uh, to start with. And this is even before hormones have been initiated. We're not quite clear why that is, whether it's related to a vitamin D deficiency or a reduced physical exercise. However, uh, bone densities uh, should be considered as well um, as part of at least a baseline evaluation, particularly in older patients. However, with uh, estradiol therapy, it does seem to improve. Okay. Screening uh, recommendations for transgender men include uh, pelvic health, which is something that I focus on in my consultations greatly. Um, so that includes a manual palpation. It may include a pap smear as well. Uh, I will note that uh, many patients do have a history of sexual assault. And so this has to be done in a very sensitive manner. Uh, and so having someone with experience uh, uh, with transgender patients is, uh, is, is helpful. Um, also, there's often a question about what to do about residual breast tissue, particularly in patients who have had uh, chest reconstructive surgery. Uh, so when, uh, when chest reconstructive surgery is done, it doesn't actually remove all the breast tissue the way a mastectomy typically is done for, for instance, breast cancer. And so if you have patients who have something like a BRCA mutation or a very strong family history of uh, breast cancer, you would still need to monitor that residual breast tissue the way you would uh, in a cisgender uh, female. When should we think about sending a transgender patient to an endocrinologist? Are there and there are there other subspecialty areas that uh, may help us in the care of a mm -hmm. transgender patient? So I don't think that endocrinologists necessarily need to be uh, involved in hormone therapy if the primary provider is well experienced in this area, is comfortable prescribing hormones. Sometimes we will see these patients if there is a uh, intersex uh, condition as part of the, the, their gender identity as well. Um, also, if perhaps um, the pri primary provider is having difficulty, for instance, getting testosterone down um, in a transgender uh, woman. Um, we do utilize a lot of other services. We have a GYN, for instance, that is specific for our transgender men, um, and I think that is important. We have help with dermatology, infectious disease, um, um, physical therapy, amongst others. So it, it, it really is a, a multidisciplinary practice. Mm -hmm. Well, I know it's the demographics of 
transgender patients, it's difficult to estimate, but is there some rough idea in terms of um, how many transgender patients and transgender individuals mm -hmm. we, ha we have in the in the US, there's an estimate of about 0.6% of the adult population who identify as transgender. Okay. And I received no training in this topic, and it seems like it's only relatively recent that this topic has, uh, has been uh, mm -hmm. is coming out, but I suspect transgender individuals have been around forever. Yes. And I also suspect that many have gone through their whole life uh, uh, uncomfortable and... Uh, raised as the sex they were uh, born with. Is that, uh, is that the case? Absolutely. And I think that the reason we are, are seeing a lot more transgender patients now is because the healthcare coverage has remarkably improved over the last few years. I have some patients telling me that in, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, their patient had one file for them that was for their regular healthcare issues and then a separate file for their gender-related healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really has been underground until about five to ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know some patients pursue surgical treatment. Um, what are the barriers to that? Uh, insurance coverage, mm -hmm. uh, finding a surgeon, uh, what issues uh, are related to the surgery? I think all of the above. I think one of the leading barriers has been coverage um, from healthcare insurers. That said, it, it is improving um, over time. However, there has been a paucity of, of surgical expertise in this as well. There've been a, there's been a lack of fellowship, so like teaching our surgeons how to perform these surgeries. However, I th think that's changing too over time. So we are seeing more and more surgeons who are um, having this as their, their niche practice. Also a lot of social and financial support. So this, this is a big surgery. Um, it's a big surgery physically, it's a big surgery emotionally in that person's transition. And so a lot of physical and emotional support is needed. And so, you know, one of the things here that we ensure before any of our patients go through surgery is to make sure that they have that social support in place. Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned, I have received no training in this and I suspect many of my colleagues of my age are the same situation. So what resources are available for us to learn more about the care of transgender patients? Here at Mayo Clinic, we actually have a CME course every year in October, uh, which gives a very broad um, view and um, idea of transition with transgender health. So that includes both the track for men mental health, surgeons and um, hormone providers. Also, our big governing body, the WPATH, or World Professional Association for Transgender Health, they have uh, something called Standards of Care, which can be downloaded uh, off the internet. And they also have a number of courses around the country that can be attended. Also tracks, not necessarily for, for physicians, but also, or providers, but also for mental health and surgeons as well. Um, Endocrine Society uh, just came out with uh, updated guidelines in 2017. Those are great to read. And then, as I mentioned, the Standards of Care from WPATH. Well, we've been talking about transgender patient care with Caroline Davich-Pitts, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist. Thank you for your time, Caroline. Thank you so much. Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and the globe. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.